1: Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today I'll be speaking with Andrew Caton, Distinguished Professor of History at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. His book, Love in the Time of Revolution, Transatlantic Literary Radicalism and Historical Change, published by the University of North Carolina Press, is the topic of this show. Caton has given us a highly lucid and beautifully written history of the transatlantic relationships among the circle of radical writers, William Godwin, Mary Wollstonecraft, Stonecraft, and Gilbert Imlay. Caught in the fervor of revolutionary change, these freethinkers, believing in the goodness of humanity and reason, rejected the need for authority, hierarchies, and tradition in preserving social cohesion and well-being. Rather, mutuality and open exchange were offered as a better foundation for society. At the intersection of public lives and private desire, they sought to extend their radical vision beyond politics into their intimate lives through a new model of egalitarian and free relationships between men and women. Deconstructing marriage, their writings reflected the protest against the constraints of conventional society. Taton demonstrates how these radicals embodied a modern interpersonal ethic arising with a liberal free trade in goods and ideas. How the sexes were to relate to each other, along with political culture, changed forever. Differing gendered understandings of social commerce between men and women brought uneven consequences. Relationships founded on freedom, openness, and devoid of binding ties beyond reason desire could also produce the fruits of a masculine frame of mind, the tragedy of neglect, abuse, and abandonment experienced by women. Caton's portrait of Godwin, Stonecraft, and Imlay, changes how we read them and how we understand our modern selves. Here is my conversation with Andrew Caton. Let me introduce you to the author, Andrew Caton. Andrew, welcome to the show and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Your book has many literary qualities reflecting the frame of mind of the people that you wrote about. It's beautifully written and it was a joy to read. But before we get into all the issues that you bring up, all the ideas that you have in your book, uh, I want you to tell us something about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Love in the Time of Revolution.
0: Well, first of all, Lillian, thank you very much for, uh, having a conversation with me. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about you. And like any author, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about a book I worked on for many, many years, uh, um, by myself. I am, uh, a historian of early America. Uh, trained at Brown University in the late 1970s, and for most of my career have written uh, about the history of the period right after the American Revolution with a particular interest in politics and war and uh, empire. So this book represents, Love in the Time of Revolution represents a pretty major departure from the kind of scholarship that I had been writing up to this point in my life.
1: Okay. Okay. So, but but what, why this book? Since you've had a long career, you could have written a lot of different books. But if this is a departure, why did you depart from what you were doing before?
0: Well, um, there's several reasons here. Um, some background, uh, deep background, I guess you might call it. When I was uh, I was an undergraduate at the University of Virginia in the uh, early 1970s, and I came. For about six weeks, I was going to go to graduate school in uh, 19th century British literature. Uh, I just always liked literature a lot. Uh, My father was a librarian. He used to read to me when I was very young. I, I don't know how many children, you know have children's books read to them. He read David Copperfield to me when I was, I don't know, two, or three years old. Uh, and so I've always been very interested in that period, novels from the early 19th century, Jane Austen up through sort of Virginia Woolf, I guess. And but it's always been fun. I took literature classes in college for fun. You know, uh, I just thought the idea that I would have to go to a class and read a novel a week and sit around a table for two hours and talk with other people about it was just about. You know, this is a class. It never seemed to me that way. But ultimately, uh, I became a historian because uh, there's something about the structure of history that appeals to me. Um, the fact that you you know you have sort of You have some information that is incontrovertible. You have dates. uh, You have real people and that kind of thing. So I was interested in in, and became a historian and wrote history that I very much enjoyed writing and I'm very proud of um, throughout much of my career. But always in the back of my mind, there were a couple of things lurking. One was whether or not it was possible to use novels as evidence in a book of history because they're made up. And a lot of my colleagues uh, in, in my profession you know, scoffed at, over the years, the idea of why well you can't use a novel as historical evidence because it's not true. Uh, and historians obviously re- rely on evidence. The second thing that literature influenced me, because I've continued to read fiction. I probably read more fiction than I read history. Uh, I wanted to know if it was possible to write a history That had some of the sensibility and style of fiction. Uh, And I was particularly, I've been particularly uncomfortable in the last 15 years or so of my career with what historians do, which is, you know, necessary and important, and I, I accept that. But like most people who write in the social sciences or even in the humanities to some extent, we have to categorize people, we have to put them in certain periods and certain kinds of identity and things like that. And that just struck me as being not fully representative of of real life, (laughs) which is kind of made up as you go along and doesn't make a lot of sense to you at the time. And so these two things came together in, in Love in the Time of Revolution, where I thought, all right, why don't I write a book in which I try and use fiction as evidence and I try actually to use, as I said, the sensibility of a novelist in writing a piece of history. The particular topic I chose, which was to write about the relationship between this American adventure, Gilbert Imlay and Mary Wollstonecraft, the very famous uh, late 18th century uh, writer uh, whose most famous book was A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, um, a writer who was largely ignored, of course, until... Uh, She was rediscovered by feminist scholars, thank God, in the 1960s and 70s and has received quite a lot of scholarly attention in the last uh, three or four decades. I was attracted to their relationship because, uh, for one thing, most of what I had written about was the history of the Ohio Valley. and Gilbert Imlay had written a novel about the Ohio Valley and spent some time in Kentucky. And so I, I knew a little bit about him and I was curious about him. Um, uh, I wanted to write a book in which women were prominent, uh, mm-hmm. players. Um, I, my personal life has been such that I have grew up in a family with four sisters, no brothers. I have two daughters, no sons, spent most of my life with women. And I wanted to spend some, I wanted to actually think about that. Um, and then I wanted to write about different kinds of people. Most of my career I've written about people who are <laughs> well-behaved, <laughs> and part of what appealed to me about gilbert emily was that he was i did not like him i never liked him and he was the kind of person i would not have hung out with in high school and would have found kind of repulsive and so the issue was could i write about him in a way that was sympathetic to him and tried to understand why he did what he did without condemning him or you know overly praising him
1: you know uh um you're very successful in writing it as a, a piece of literature, uh, history's literature, but you really bring the literary sort of qualities that sometimes is missing from a lot of history, and it's in your book. But let's let's look at what you're actually dealing with here. You've, you said you have a very broad framework for these individual lives, mm-hmm. um, which is the revolutionary period mm-hmm. when lots of revolutions are going on and and everything is upside down or turn, being turned upside down. A new politic is emerging, and your, your subjects are experimenting, really, with how, what this new politic would mean in interpersonal, intimate relationships. Mm-hmm.
0: Exactly. I mean, we've, we've known for a long time now that the second half of the 18th century, in political terms, was a period of radical revolution, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Haitian Revolution creation of new independent nations. Nobody disputes that. But one of the big developments, particularly in early American history and what we call Atlantic history over the last generation, has uh, been in the field of cultural history and in the field of, of social history. And there's a great deal of interest in uh, the quotidian, in daily life, and in emotion, and whether or not historians can actually deal with emotion in some way or another. I mean, for me, what was dissatisfying about so much of what I'd written was that I write about these characters and I quote them, but they always seem so rational and so fixed in what they think, because you're quoting letters or books or something that you know, they've revised and written and, and set out there. Uh, and you're right, an uh, enormous amount of scholarship produced by, uh, let's just call it, say, non-white male historians over the last generation has turned our attention to uh, questions of intimacy. Uh, historians when we write about empire now tend to write about questions of intimacy, uh, sexual life, uh, um, marriage, uh, race, uh, children, and so on, and, and how people actually deal with each other. So uh, I was attracted to to that partly for, for professional reasons, but again what I wanted to do was to try and give the readers some sense of how these individuals experienced revolution on a daily basis Without really knowing how it was going to turn out, um, and you know, there, there are costs and benefits to that. The, the benefit is that you sort of are living in the moment. That the cost of it is that sometimes, you know, part of the job of the historian is to stand back and give you the big picture. And so, one of the biggest struggles I had in writing that book was to try and balance, uh, you know, I, the, the part about writing them on, uh, on about them on a daily basis was pretty easy, actually. But how much information do you give the reader? How you know? How do you stand back and talk about the French Revolution or talk about ideas about marriage in 18th century England and the changes in in um, the status of women or the lack of changes in the status of women? How do you talk about those things and locate them? So, you know, I mean, the the, the sense that somehow um, anything was possible it was very intoxicating.
1: You know the the, the the term that kept popping up in my head that I just, I swore you were going to use. Which you didn't, and I understand why you didn't. It's the personal is political. Yeah. Because this is exactly what they were uh, trying to put their finger on.
0: Oh, absolutely. and In fact, it was in there.
1: (laughs) Was it? How come I didn't see it? Okay. But uh, that's what I kept thinking. Uh, This is about how the political world affected the personal and how the personal had political implications. It was all meshed together and you couldn't really separate it out.
0: If you're reorganizing the whole society to some extent on the basis of consent, that is people have the right to consent to relationships, and you are arguing, for example, that Americans have the right to separate from Great Britain if they feel that somehow they are no longer being treated well or that they're no longer benefiting from it then the corollary is in your personal life. Marriage becomes a consensual activity, not something arranged by fathers and uncles and so on for for uh, economic reasons, but a choice you make because you fall in love with someone and want to be with them and consent to be married to them. But that ranges, raises all kinds of issues. I mean, to what extent was marriage a, a patriarchal institution that's forced upon both men and women, or is it an institution from which women benefit to some extent? In the book, for example, when Mary Wollstonecraft uh, bears uh, Imlay's child and has Fanny, and she's not married to him, uh, she loses quite a bit because she's not married to him legally. She, she doesn't have a claim on him. There's no way to get the state to support her in any kind of effort to get him to support the child or do anything along those lines. So, you know, and then, and of course, the corollary to that would be divorce, which people directly compared to secession or independence if – you know, if, if a free people decide it's no longer in their interest to be part of a country and they can secede from it, then isn't the same thing true of a marriage as well? So everything, what's exciting about that was that everything is on the table. You know, people are talking about anything.
1: So your three, your main three characters are Gilbert Emily, Mary Willis Stonecraft, and William Godwin. And these uh, three characters were really trying to redefine the relationship between men and women and how they were going to live and how they were going to arrange their intimate lives that reflected revolutionary ideas. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you uh, talk a lot about, the term is social commerce. Mm -hmm. Uh, Please unpack that for the audience. You know, what is meant by social commerce and how does friendship, uh, how did they redefine friendship?
0: Well, I mean, part of the problem of the late 18th century was, okay, fine, you're going to eliminate monarchy. You're going to eliminate patriarchy. You're going to reduce the power of monopolies and strong institutions in society. And there was a lot of fear among all kinds of people that what you were going to do was create anarchy. Can you really have a society that operates where people essentially choose to do what they're going to do? I mean, it becomes the basis of what we would call kind of democratic operation. But they're, they're models. They're, there's the notion of a state, a democratic state, and then a society. And the people I'm writing about were radicals in the sense that they believed that society would work better if it were voluntary. Now, that doesn't mean be not going to be mistakes and problems, but that people would choose to behave well. They would choose to do things because they would understand what was best, not only for them, but for other people. The term social commerce comes from the idea that they did not think of themselves and did not understand freedom to be the right to do whatever you wanted to do or to go off and be by yourself and be an individual, and this is what I want. Freedom was not about, or liberty, was not about the unrestrained fulfillment of desire. I want that and because I am, you know, have rights, I can have it or I don't want to do that. They understood the necessity for people to actually enjoy more happiness and prosperity and liberty through their willingness to give up a certain extent, a certain degree of liberty. The question was whether that should come from the state or whether you could figure out voluntarily what you needed to surrender through converse or conversation or friendship. So the point of having friends was not simply to be supportive and have somebody to go out with and do all kinds of fun things. A true friend was one who said to you, I think your imagination is getting out of control here. Or I think maybe you've lost perspective on this. Or have you considered this? In other words, what happens was that you you, uh, correct your behavior Uh, through conversation with people, which allows you to stand outside of yourself and see how you're behaving and make choices uh, for the ways in which you want to behave.
1: Now, these choices uh, within um, personal, interpersonal relationships were also sort of going concurrently with the fact that there were more now um, an economic, uh, a liberal economic order and a liberal political order was emerging and taking hold. And so... This was the parallel of the parallel within interpersonal relationships of ex- free exchange interdependence
0: right so so like for example, when you think about Adam Smith, who was one of the great um, political economists philosophers of the eighteenth century and his most famous book is the Wealth of nations and often cited by people today as an example of uh, uh, you know the markets and the way in which governments should not interfere in the operation of markets, and you know he was famous for saying or for talking about competition and profit and so on. What I'm talking about and what other historians have talked about, from what I'm drawing on, is to to understand Smith in an 18th century context, and also to to write not just about the Wealth of Nations, but about his other one of his other major works, which was the Theory of Moral Sentiments, in which he argues that. You, you are self, we are all selfish, but one of the ways in which we learn how to function as social creatures is through what he called sympathy. And sympathy is not empathy, What we, you know, oh, I feel bad for the person. In fact, sympathy really is not a feeling for the other person at all. It's all about you. You, you, you imagine yourself or identify with another person's situation and see how they behave. And then that allows you to learn from their experience. To some extent, novels function that way. What you're doing is you are reading something and becoming engaged in another person's life that's not even real. And you may care about them. You may cry when somebody dies or be happy when something good happens to them. But the 18th century idea would be fundamentally you're essentially in a social laboratory. You're watching human beings behave. You're looking at the consequences of their actions and the choices they make. So that reading is like talking to a friend. And characters in books become like friends. Uh, so, you know, you learn that. I mean, the most famous example of that for many people today would be Jane Austen. The, the importance, uh, for young women of reading something where characters they could identify with are choosing husbands. And understanding, well, if I do this. This may happen. Uh, you know, the, the, that it is uh, learning from their experiences. Is what I'm trying to say. So, social commerce is a critical idea, and I think it goes against what a lot of people think about the 18th century, which is the American Revolution. And so, are not arguing that society. You know, the thing was everybody should be free and do whatever they wanted to. Do. Instead, it was arguing that people should have the freedom to choose within a web of relationships, within a context where your friends and your relatives and other people say, maybe that's not a good idea.
1: Now, uh, Edmund Burke was sort of the nemesis to your group of subjects. Yep. And he he responded very forcefully to them. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he said was a revolution in sentiment is happening in manners, in moral opinion. Talk to to, what was the pushback against this uh, uh, vision that your subjects had on how to reorder intimate relationships and marriage and family and community?
0: A lot of people thought it was a pipe dream. It's just pie in the sky kind of you know uh, a bunch of crazy people imagining that somehow another human beings can regulate their own lives. And Burke, who was hardly you know he he's often thought of as a conservative. He was not a conservative in the way we think of people today, but he believed that history was human experience, and institutions had developed for a reason. That marriage existed for a reason, uh, and that churches were there and governments were there for a reason. And to just simply decide suddenly in you know 1789 or 1776, we're going to do away with stuff that human beings have developed over millennia, struck him as being. Uh, socially suicidal, actually. Uh, and so people like Thomas Paine, who was a friend of Wollstonecraft, you know, The Rights of Man, talking about people are born with certain rights or have certain rights and, and arguing that history is really about a fight to maintain those rights. Burke would have said, you know, look, governments make mistakes, institutions make mistakes, but without those institutions, without respect for history, without a respect for, uh, all that our forefathers have done, uh, you are essentially pretending that you can reinvent the world with every generation. And he just thought that was the recipe for disaster. Now, what, what happens in the case of Wollstonecraft and Imlay, and this parallels the French Revolution, is that Burke actually writes first in, in 1789 books published in 1790, Reflections on the Revolution of France, which was one of the best-selling books of the, of the late 18th century. Uh, if I remember correctly, it sold more copies at the time than the rights of man did. But, you know, the French Revolution, so many people prove Burke's point. Because what happens is a revolution for kind of a constitutional monarchy and so on, ends up in the reign of terror, and so the king is executed in January 93, and it just seems like a bloodbath, and the whole thing seems to fall apart. Meantime, Wollstonecraft and Imlay's relationship, which starts in Paris seems to do the same thing on a personal level. They, they meet each other, they fall in love, they start sleeping together, they don't get married. Um, this is the new world. This is the new freedom to choose, and so on. And then she gets pregnant. <laughs> and when she gets pregnant, he leaves her. And she, as a woman with no rights, with no real recourse, is sort of out there on her own. And there's no way to to deal with this problem. So for many people, when they find out about Wollstonecraft's dilemma, they say, look, on a public level, this is where these crazy ideas lead. People having their heads cut off in the middle public square because there's no respect for any tradition or order or anything else. And in the case of Wollstonecraft saying, you defy centuries of tradition, you refuse to get married, you sleep with a man just because you think it's a good thing to do and give in desire, and you can expect to end up being deserted with a child at your breast.
1: What I noticed about uh, your subjects also was the fact that the definition of what was social commerce, what friendship was about, what love was going to be, what free love was, real free love, and liberty uh, was very gendered. Mm -hmm. Gilbert Imlay had a very different idea. What, <laughs> yeah. what their relationship was about and what this yeah. new ethic and intimacy was about right. versus what Mary Wallenstonecraft actually mm-hmm. believed. And she she had a word. She really believed in interdependence, and she thought that what Imlay was doing was a, a sort of social death. You, yep. uh, please unpack that for us because like, it was very you know, interesting. What
0: I mean is that she saw Imlay, uh, and this was an attitude about Americans in the 1790s, that, that Imlay was trying to go through the world acting as if he was a kind of uh, unrestrained id. That is, you know, he was an American male and it was his right to go around the world and pretty much do what he wanted to do. Uh, and that that's what the revolutions of the late 18th century meant, was he was free and he was free to explore and free to experiment and free to make money and free to move from woman to woman and all this other kind of stuff that he was doing. Whereas whereas Wollstonecraft's notion was more of this social commerce notion I've been talking about. And she wanted not only a lover, but a friend, somebody who would allow her to uh, grow and develop and, and be part of him. So what she's talking about with social death is she's what, what that means. Or I don't think she used that word, but I used that word, which was that. By insisting, Imlay insisting that he was kind of this autonomous, independent white male from America, could do whatever he was pleasing to do, he had no relationships with anybody else that mattered. He was dead socially. I mean, he was alive physically, but that he had no relationships and therefore no support system we would call today, no monitoring, nobody to function in any way with him. Uh, in any way that was useful of all. My favorite line in the whole book, and for me the key to what I'm trying to say, is in a letter she wrote, Wollstone wrote to inlay before the end of their relationship. And she talks about, you know, I don't want to be dependent upon you. I don't want to be, you know, what do I want? I want to be necessary to you. And that's my favorite line in the whole thing. And I think what it means is, what it meant to me is this social commerce idea, this idea of friendship. I, I should be necessary to you as you are necessary to me.
1: But there's a real idealism there because she wants it to be free. Yep. And she didn't But re- she didn't want the constraints of the marriage institution or the church or whatever to set those boundaries. She wanted Imlay to do this freely, completely out of his own volition right. and not to be constrained by... Uh, any kind of duty, I think we would say, uh, duty, a sense of responsibility, responsibility that was ass- assigned to him by outside forces, outside the relationship. And so she was putting an awful lot of weight on on the their personal relationship to be able to hold it all together.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, in my judgment, she put too much weight on that. Uh, um, I... D- I, the book itself is is actually love in the time of revolution it's not simply about the Wollstonecraft inlay affair that's sort of the core of the first three or four chapters of the book she of course has gets eventually gets married to William Godwin uh, the writer uh, has another child whose name is Mary becomes married to Percy Shelley becomes the author of Frankenstein and she she Mary Wollstonecraft dies in childbirth in her 30s and uh, so you know, for her, it, it doesn't end very well, but her new husband, Godwin, who was a writer himself, writes a very controversial memoir of his wife's life in which, which he thinks he's actually explaining her choices and he's actually praising her. But because of the timing at the end of the 1790s and the French Revolution going the way it was, uh, his readers tended to read it as a kind of morality play that showed how idealistic and foolish all of these ideas were. And what I try and do in the rest of the book is actually talk about fiction and mainly fiction to argue that people were thinking about this, exactly what you're saying.
1: So what you, you, uh, yes, you talk about the novel really as being, you know, of this, the modern form of the novel being reflective of all these changes that in women were very involved in writing these novels.
0: Right. Well, the, the primary, I mean, fiction was not, not written exclusively by women, but certainly up until the second decade of the 19th century, when you begin to get Sir Walter Scott in the historical novel, most fiction was written by women. And the primary audience for it, overwhelmingly, was women. It was one of the few areas in the Anglo-American world in the 18th century where a woman could actually begin to make something of a living. Mary Wollstonecraft manages to support herself for... A period of years as a writer. Uh, now that was unusual for a woman, certainly, uh, at the end of the 18th century. So there was that opportunity. But my my argument in the book is that people knew about this affair, and that and the tendency of scholars, frankly, is to put all this into categories. You know, conservative reaction or idealistic reaction, or so on. And what I saw happening in the fiction I was reading because I thought a lot of the fiction in England and America, the late 1790s and early 1800s, was a kind of retelling of the Wollstonecraft inlay story. And what I found interesting in the novels was that it's not black and white. <laughs> it's very ambiguous. And some of the authors would there's something attractive about this. Now, yes, it's idealistic. Yes, it ends badly. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't anything at all to it. In In the same way, you know, they're going to, they're gonna say, and 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 so really, what I think they were trying to talk about were the consequences of these decisions, and what was it possible to find some way to balance the the uh, you know the the idealism it, to keep that part of it somehow and be realistic at the same time.
1: Because there's a there's a real g- gender politics that's being worked out in these novels and it's usually you know there's all this love and passion and desire and then there's also betrayal and abandonment usually the woman gets abandoned and betrayed and
0: oh, it's almost all right. <laughs> so. yeah.
1: right so there is there's a, a real effort on the part of society through these novels i think the society does the novels do reflect what's going on in society so um to work at, to to work out the gender politics of this new way of thinking about the self which brings me to another point in your book is you this is really a, a history of the emergence of the modern self because i saw our contemporary attitudes towards yeah. marriage and intimacy and friendship very much situated in these people's lives we 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 think this way we think mm-hmm. that love is to be free and open and and
0: And that's part of the reason why I thought they were writing about, even though these are people who a lot of people have written about uh, before. Uh, you know I mean it's, it, it would be an, uh, an obvious criticism of my book that well you're writing about six people <laughs> but these six people strike me as being six enormously influential people uh, and I don't think they invented the novel I don't think they invented the modern self but I think they became very important embodiments and representations of that so I agree with you about that I also totally agree with you about the gender politics of it uh, gender was a word I avoided to Some extent, just like I don't use the word romantic very much, just like I don't use the word enlightenment, I was deliberately trying to avoid categories. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that we might want to talk about that a little bit at some point, but those are the kinds of literary decisions, writing decisions, interpretive decisions. And in earlier drafts, I was much more. explicit about things, and a little less opaque than I am in the current version of the book, final version of the book.
1: Yeah, the, the, the gender dynamics that I see in throughout the book is that the ideas themselves were understood very differently by men and women. Correct. And what they thought it was going to look like. The yep. consequences of, the bad consequences were very different to men and women, mm-hmm. and we're still kind of still working all those things out.
0: Right, and there's a power dynamic, which is obviously gendered, which is that the men hold all the cards. Uh, I mean, you can talk about, I can talk about Wollstonecraft living on her own for a few years in London and supporting herself, but she had no real legal existence. She had no rights. Um, and, and so that's why I think, that, you know, there are all kinds of reasons, but one of the major reasons why the woman was always going to end up with the short end of the stick, so to speak, was that she had no power. And these, these novels and, mm-hmm. and, and Wollstonecraft stories make that clear. Here you have one of the smartest, most eloquent spokespeople of the, of, the, of the late 18th century for the rights of women. And yet, and so she puts, tries to put into practice some of the ideas she was talking about. And she ends up finding herself, uh, you know, confirming her indictment of society to a large extent because there is almost no way for her to turn. So what's the point then? The point is that I think they found in writing and in reading with each other a way of dealing with that, a way of finding support with each other, identifying, sympathizing with other people's experiences. And I think fiction is a way for women to keep that gender dynamic alive and to talk about it and think about it, even in a period in which they are denied Legal rights and political um, voting power, and so on. Now, that doesn't mean you know, fiction makes them all powerful. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that fiction becomes a way of managing your powerlessness or thinking about it.
1: Now, her daughter Mary Godwin Shelley mm-hmm. continues really her okay. mother's legacy. Mm-hmm. She continues. She tries to really live out. Um, what her mother attempted and, yep. and failed miserably <laughs> to accomplish. <laughs> um, so talk about Mary Godwin Shelley a little bit and, and, uh, and Percy Shelley. and They were very, very young.
0: Well, yeah, ridiculously young. Uh, Percy Shelley, to some extent, reminded, or I mean, I guess I, I thought began to think of him as a kind of very, very smart, talented version of him uh he, you know he's a he's he's taking full advantage of his gender uh, privilege uh, and you know he he leaves a wife and a child in order to run off with with Mary uh, Godwin becomes his wife Shelley and Mary Wollstonecraft's daughter um he's he's not one of my favorite people <laughs> on the other hand and you know Mary Mary Godwin, when she decides to go off to France with him uh, um, is, is deliberately deliberately trying to attach herself to her mother's legacy. Uh, and one of the things I try and do in the book is to talk about how they're reading Wollstonecraft as they leave London and as they go to Paris. But I also try to, to highlight in a literary sense the contrast between Paris when they get there to what it had been when her mother and Imlay had got together. Where it's just full of Possibility, and when Shelley and Mary Godwin get to Paris, it's a city in ruins. It's a conquered city. The 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 dreams of the 1790s are gone. And I guess you know, I mean, scholars are going to do disagree with me about that, about this. But I still see Mary Godwin Shelley in her writings, not so much during her her life with with Percy Shelley, who of course dies very early in the 1820s but in her novels, trying to keep alive the kinds of questions and the kind of issues that her mother had talked about. It's a different context, yes. It's a a kind of proto-Victorian context in a different situation for women. But I guess part of what I'm arguing about... There is the idea that Wollstonecraft said what she said in the 1790s, and then because uh, of her affair with Imlay, nobody paid any attention to her for another century and a half. I think a lot of women in the 1800s were actually paying attention to her. And again, I don't think that means, I, I don't see paying attention mean endorsing. I don't see paying attention meaning saying you made no mistakes. I think they were engaging with her ideas and found it useful to contemplate the kinds of things she was saying to her daughter.
1: Right. The, um, the other thing, too, is this is trans transatlantic history. Yep. And Imlay is the prominent American in Sorry. your book. And Imlay is a t- <laughs> ugly American. sense America well, right? <laughs> you know, he, he kind of embodies this coarse, commercial, yeah. capitalistic, imperialistic mindset, you know, and I don't know if you emphasize that on purpose. Uh, if you were tra- trying to make a point with Emily being this representative of the American ethos and how uh, these characters were actually received um, in America. Mm-hmm. Because, well, in Stonecraft's uh, writings came to America pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, and she and her, and her second husband, Godwin, were actually well-respected in America until people found out about her affair, and until Vindication of the Rights of Woman actually went through, uh, was published in Philadelphia, Uh, you know, people read it, and Aaron Burr read it, Um, it's cited by by uh, prominent Americans, Hamilton and others, I mean, people knew about it, they were reading and thinking about it. It's only when they find out about her personal life.
1: (laughs) But you can't separate the political from the personal. And,
0: and that's what I'm saying. I totally agree with that in that sense. But I think what, ha- what, what fiction does to some extent better than history in this period is that fiction keeps the personal at the center of things. And, and so the novels that I write about that are written and read on both sides of the Atlantic Um, I'm not so, you know, a lot of literary scholars for years, although this is not true so much lately, are always worried about, well, nothing worthwhile is written in America until you have an American literature. So until you get to Washington Irving and Fenimore Cooper and finally Ralph Waldo Emerson in the 1830s, then you have something worth reading. I think that's misguided. I think the writers and readers in um, America in the 1790s and early 1800s were actually engaging in the same kind of conversation with these, with these English works. And they were reading English novels and writing like them. I don't think the issue there was independence from Great Britain. I think it was a transatlantic conversation about things like gender that cut across national lines. That a young woman in Philadelphia could read A Vindication of the Rights of Woman and understand it as speaking to her experience. And the fact that she was reading an English woman should not somehow say that there's no uh, literary vitality going on in America because she's not thinking about it in terms of an American literature. And that's... So, I, you know, I just think there were a lot of these uh, these novels written and read for 10 or 15 years after the Imlay-Wolkestone affair in which people all over the Atlantic world were talking about these issues.
1: Now, Imlay... Like I asked, and I'm going to ask again. Go ahead. Was is he? Is he? Was he as ugly as as you present him? <laughs> or were you trying to make a point? Sometimes you can use a character like that to make a point about America. Were you? Is this, a, is this your personal critique of American society or American
0: uh, thought? I'd say no, I mean it's interesting that you say that I was so critical of him because I just. Was talking to someone who thought I was far too kind to him. Oh. <laughs> that I had been too easy for him. You know, I, I told you when I started out that Imlay was somebody I didn't like. So I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna make any, you know, pretensions to saying that somehow I, I got him. I didn't understand Godwin. I understood, but that's because Godwin's more of a you know shy intellectual professorial type like me and people who hang out that way. Whereas Imlay was. Was much more sort of out there. I think the big challenge writing about Imlay, and I, I, you know, if you're going to ask me what part of the book doesn't really work for me, it's Imlay. And maybe it's partly because of what you just said. But it's one of those rare cases in history where we know a lot more about the woman than we do about the man. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Most of the time we're trying to guess what the wife or the daughter thinks. Because, you know, the man is the writer or the politician or whatever it is. In this case, it's Wollstonecraft whose letters we have. It's Wollstonecraft's books we have. There's a whole industry of works on Wollstonecraft being published all the time. What do we know about Gilbert Imlay? Scraps of paper. Um, did
1: he you know, he, re- he did write this? Uh, he book wrote that
0: novel about
1: was it an Ohio Valley set in the Ohio Valley?
0: With the emigrants
1: was that part of his sort of a utopian vision? And did Mary sort of fall for this because he was presenting this sort of utopian vision of we're going to go to the Ohio Valley and we're going to have this community and it's going to be beautiful?
0: I think she saw him as someone who was buying into the kind of vision of a social commerce that she had. Uh, I mean, I think that's the interesting question, and you can't answer it. Was was Inlay just a, sh- a, a chameleon, who was, as I sometimes thought, someone who sort of adjusted to wherever he was? Okay, this is what I have to do to get what I want here. Was he lying to her, or did he genuinely, you know, did he genuinely believe uh, a lot of this stuff? And like other people, began to realize as you move from idealism to realism that it just wasn't uh, a practical way to live his life. Um, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't have made the decisions he made, but that's not really my job as a historian. I mean, my job as a historian is to try and understand him in the context of the 1790s and the options that were available to him. Anyway, to answer your question directly, no, I do not think he is representative of all Americans. And that's part of the reason why the fact that the books about that Wollstonecraft is popular in America and that people write about it and talk about our experience – I think is, is, is very important. There were a lot of people in America who condemned Imlay's behavior as much as people did in England. So do I think that Gilbert Imlay represented a certain strain of men who interpreted liberty as license? I think I would probably go that far. But in terms of standing in for America...
1: No, okay. It's just because, because he was the, the main American. Or this, He's
0: the main American, that is true.
1: In your book, it, yes. it just seems like, oh, my goodness, the picture here of America is not too good. Yeah. Um, what about this connection between love and liberty? Yeah. <laughs> Talk to me about that. I thought that was very interesting. Um, well, I mean, I'm not sure how you want me to go with that. Uh, I mean... Does liberty require love, and does love require liberty? Or well, can love, well, you know, can love be, can, can you uh, love within constraints?
0: You know, Lillian, uh, I'm, I'm going to give you an unsatisfactory answer to that, but an honest one, I don't know. And, you know, I mean, this is part of being an author, I think, to some extent, Uh you're writing okay. book but you're thinking about this all the time too you are you really are I mean that's one of the things I, th- I think that sometimes one of the reasons I love writing so much for one thing it's a challenge to try and set yourself a goal but for the other thing is it's a way of thinking and considering and I think the tension between love and liberty are at the core of the book along with gender issues and every day that I was thinking about this and writing this book I was thinking about it and you know how many times <laughs> do you change your mind in the course of, of the book? I mean, I, it took me. I worked on that book for about ten years. I went through, I would say, four serious, distinct drafts, because I couldn't get it to figure out. And and at the end, I couldn't figure out how to end it. I could not figure out how to end it. And I'm just on and on and on. And then, you know, I came into my office one morning and I had been thinking about love and liberty. On my morning walk with the dog. And I just sat down and I wrote. And the last three or four or five pages of the book are what I wrote that morning, almost unedited. And I think, I think that was not some like great achievement. I think that was a distillation of 10 years worth of thinking about this problem and saying essentially what's going to sound to many people to be a Weasley answer, but I think it's a true answer is that that boundary between love and liberty is constantly shifting. It's highly contingent. And as you say, different people say it in different ways. Men look at it differently from, from women. And if there's anything to be learned from it, it is that, again, the value of social commerce and trying to understand yourself, not as an isolated person, but as somebody who functions and thinks and acts within a web of relationships that uh, influence and affect who you are as well as other people.
1: So now uh, you, you started the interview talking about how you wanted to see no- use novels as a form of evidence, historical evidence, and you felt like there was a lot of pushback. Yeah, I don't. Do you think that that's still true? Do you still feel that way? Uh, because yeah. I, I, I think to me, novels are very much reflective of their time and. and because well, the, the authors cannot extract themselves from their social context and their political context.
0: I mean, you can learn a lot. I mean, I, I don't think there's as much reaction against it uh, as there was 40, 50 years ago. In part because 50 years ago, historians thought mainly what you should write about is politics. Well, that's clearly not true anymore. I mean, on the one hand, novels can provide you very specific evidence. It's like... It's like watching a movie, to some extent, made in the 1930s or 40s. I mean, you can look at the background and see, you know, how homes were decorated and how, what kind of clothes people were. You can learn that kind of thing. But the main thing, I think, that novels do that history can't do is they give you a sense of psychological truth that historians really struggle with. We we, don't get, we can't go in the sides of minds of people. We tend to read documents, by and large, that are edited and revised, <laughs> And one of the things I love about Wollstonecraft's letters, is if, is if you actually see them, she just dashes them off. I mean, she clearly did not rewrite stuff. So you get a real sense of the woman. And, but, you know, I, I think, I, I mean, again, what I would say is, would I use fiction to write and say, this is actually what happened in Philadelphia in the 1790s? No, although some details of it might be appropriate. But to say, these are the kinds of problems that people were thinking about. Yes, absolutely. And that uh, you what, can g- gain a lot of insight.
1: Yeah, you're, you don't go to novels for f- facts, hard facts, but you can go to them for sensibilities.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, in the same way, if you look at a period of today and you look at a certain kind of movie that's really popular at a certain period of time, okay, is this an accurate representative of American society? No, but it certainly gives you some clue as to what was on the minds of a lot right. of people who wanted to go to
1: the movie. So what do you think that your book does in terms of historiography? What, where does it make a contribution? What do you, where, where do you go from here?
0: <laughs> well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I've got another assignment that I'm doing with a co-author whom I've written on before. This was kind of a, this was my fun book. This was a book I really wrote for myself, <laughs> as selfishly as that sounds. It's a great book. I, I, I thank you for that. I'm very, I'm very proud of this book. I'm probably more proud of this book than anything else I've ever done in my life. But I re- wrote it assuming no one would ever read it. Uh, other books I've read, written, I've read for a particular audience. This one, I, I really, I really wasn't thinking about it very much. I really, the thing that matters to me most is not so much the historiographical contribution as what I tried to do in a literary sense. That was the real challenge for me.
1: As a writer. It was more an experience as a writer for you. Right.
0: How far could I push the borders of being a historian? That is not turning to interpretive categories all the time, not saying, I'm going to write this book, and here's the question, and here's the thesis, and here's all the evidence. To try and capture the kind of unfinished, make-it-up-as-we-go quality of everyday life and experience, and you know that's the part for me that matters the most. Um, it's the kind of book you can write when you're an older guy. <laughs> Basically, you know, I'm a tenured full professor with a job. I've published other books. I have a reputation in my field. I mean, I think a lot of people look at this book and say, "What?"
1: <laughs> I think it's wonderful. I I, right. I, I like uh, your approach. Uh, it's, it reads sort of like a narrative history. Yeah. Uh, it reads. It right. reads that way.
0: Right, but. Part of, and it goes back to your love and liberty question and the inlay question is another thing I was trying to do in this book is not to pronounce final judgment on these things, to leave them kind of open ended. And that's something historians usually don't, don't do. We say, here's what you should take away, and we write it out very explicitly. That's what I do in my other book.
1: Yeah, there's not a real, yes, I was looking for, okay, where's this thesis statement? You that know, we're, right. we're, right. read the introduction and it's going to be in there. And,
0: You know, what is interesting is that that frustrates some of my uh, professional colleagues because it says a lot about how books get read these days, Which and I do it too. I mean, you you have a massive number of books published professionally, and people read books in a couple of hours because you go and you look for the question and the thesis and you check the evidence. You don't even actually sit down and read it all the way through. You sort of take away what it is. What's the contribution here in a few sentences and a piece of evidence? And, Lillian, to be honest with you, I wanted to write a book that if people were going to get it, they were going to have to read it all the way through. (laughs) And on the one hand, um, those who actually do read it seem to be, you know, I get a lot of very positive reaction to it, but I think it's a challenge for a lot of my colleagues to say, I'm going to sit down and spend a couple of days reading a book this long.
1: Well, I do think it makes a lot of contributions to a lot of different areas of history. Uh, the history of the emergence of the modern self, em- history of emotions, yes. political history, economic history, because all these are all together. You cannot right. – I think what I love about it is that there's a lot of different aspects, historical aspects, that are working together to make this whole. Right. You. It, th- there's political and economic implications to these intimate relationships. Right. And – And I think that that's what I really like about it.
0: And I I think you're right. If I were going to, you know, force to identify a contribution in an intellectual sense, I think it's a synthetic contribution. I don't think the individual pieces of it are revelatory to to people who study this. But I do think putting it all together in one book, it is very unusual to have a historian who can write about diplomacy and economic development in the Atlantic and also write about sexual intimacy, and, and it's just Right, just the kind of thing people do.
1: Right, so if you're going to categorize this book, Love in a Time of Revolution, is it literary history, is it political history, is it economic Is it history of liberalism, the modern self? You know, I mean, I think it's all those things. Yeah, it is I, those I, things, that's I right.
0: Thought, I spent a lot of time thinking about that because, you know, particularly in the world of social media and the Internet, you know, my, like my publisher, you know, they want six keywords <laughs> because those are the kinds of things that people will find and, and actually identify. But and I tried to do that for a while, but the more I thought that defeats the purpose of what I'm trying to do, I, I'm deliberately trying to write a book that avoids that kind of easy categorization. So, you know, the, the benefit of that is I wrote a book I'm immensely happy with and feel satisfied having written. The cost of that may be that readers may have a hard time finding it because it's not easily identifiable as, oh, this is a literary history or this is a, you know the kind of things that you're talking about. Right. A lot of people, and you notice this in books published on um, trade books, they want to be able to identify them right away as what it is that they're about.
1: Now, um, what what is it that you think uh, your subjects, Imlay, Willemstonecraft, and Godwin, really... Um, Leave for us modern people living in, you know, 2015. <laughs> well, what, uh, what questions do they ha- do they raise that we're still struggling with that we're still not that we should consider, or maybe think we solved but we haven't solved?
0: Well, I think you've you've identified most of in The question itself, I think the gender dynamics are different, but not that different. Um, I think. There, the question of children and legacy. One of the things we didn't talk about was how important the daughters are in in this book, Uh, and what happens to the daughters. I I mean, I see the daughters as the ultimate consequence of the choice you make. That kind of thing. Um, I I mean, what I what I think they speak to is is people. I think we live in a revolutionary age. I think we live in a time when things are just changing so rapidly we can barely keep up with them. Um, Largely produced by digital stuff, but just sort of socially. Um, I think about, you know, I'm 60. I think about how much has changed in my lifetime. It's breathtaking. And so the experience of these people who, as you say, are beginning to think in ways that we would recognize as familiar, whether we want to call them a modern or not. Um, for me, being with them was a useful experience. And, I, I mean, I think I ended the book in a way that took me, I mean, again, it just sort of came to me, but it was not, you know, what I said was, uh, I they are necessary to me. In the same way, Wollstonecraft was trying to say to to Imlay, I I understand me better because I've known them.
1: I I, to- I totally agree with you. I, I was there were many moments in the book that I'm going, oh my goodness, I've thought those exact thoughts. Yep. <laughs> or, I'm totally with them on this one, and then and then and then of course. Then you see the, the consequences, and then you go, "Well, wait a minute, though. Let's right. not go too far with it." So I don't yeah. think you don't do things
0: because there are bad consequences. I mean, right. Realize sometimes that you you do things that may have bad consequences, but you need it is important to do it anyway. I mean, and and that's part of what reading all this stuff is about. Yeah, you know, I mean I wrote a book once with a friend with a friend of mine on war and somebody said, Well what do you want uh, people in the Pentagon to, you know, have your book on the shelf and pull it down and, and say and I said, No, what I really want them to do is to think about when you start a war, you're gonna end up somewhere you had no idea that you were gonna end up. Now, if you can live with that and you think starting the war is important enough to risk that, then you should go ahead and do it. And that's the same way I feel about the love affair I'm talking about.
1: Aren't, but isn't there? There's also a pushback there in these characters, uh, their romanticism. And I know you. I was looking for you to say the word, but you never yeah. did. No, really, did. <laughs> You're like we're these guys are very romantic, and he's not saying it. Uh, uh, right. <laughs> that's also pushing against another modern ethos, which is the idea that we that as humanity gains knowledge and gains scientific power, that we can control the consequences of, of whatever we choose to do. So there's another lesson there about no matter how much control we seemingly think we have. We don't. That we don't.
0: Right. And I, I think there's a useful, I, you know, if you're asking me if there's a moral for us today, I think that's the, the one that, I, that matters to me the most is you, you can't not do things because it might not turn out the way that you want them to. You can't not do things because you can't control it. Uh, you do what you do, and you, you can do it with the best of intentions. But you have to realize that you're going to end up someplace, likely very different from where you wanted to go in the first place. And you're going to have to take, or at least for me, you have to take responsibility for that, even though you might not have intended it at all to, to happen in the way that you did.
1: So, if history, if you, if one sees history as moral inquiry,
0: yeah,
1: do you see, do you see your work as being a, a, a moral inquiry
0: yeah i do and that's probably saying that's going to make colleagues uncomfortable because you know historians and i'm to i mean we like to think of ourselves as somewhat detached but i and for me it's the same thing with teaching you you classes and books have to operate on several levels and if there's not something at stake on an emotional and moral level then I'm not sure why I'm doing what I'm doing.
1: Right. I mean, why do we why do we study slavery?
0: Right. Now, I mean,
1: unless right. you think it's if, if, – you have to think that there's a problem there to be solved because if there's not a problem to be solved, there's no point in studying something. Well,
0: you know, I guess I would, would qualify it a little bit and say, I don't go into my classes and say to students, slavery was bad, it was awful. No, not, I understand you know, that. that. To start with. What, what, I, what I want to talk to them about is moral dilemmas. Right. moral dilemmas that do not have easy answers. I still think that is one of the great values of a, of, of a college education is to, for people to come out knowing not that they have all the answers or certainly not that they have vocational training, but that a lot of what you experience in your life is a dilemma. It is not a clear-cut yes or no answer.
1: There were a lot of dilemmas in your book.
0: Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> Lots of dilemmas.
1: That's uh, that's that's now. Absolutely. Andrew, uh, you've been really generous with your time, but I have one final question. What are you working on now? What do you hope to do in the future?
0: <laughs> well, this is going to sound completely crazy, but uh, my collaborator, Fred Anderson at the University of Colorado, with whom I wrote a book called The Dominion of War that Viking published about 10 years ago. Uh, we've been contracted to write the um, colonial volume in the Oxford history of the United States. Oxford University Press publishes this series, big, huge, fat books. on. So we are writing um, a history of the period of the Late 17th century up through uh, the origins of the American Revolution, and uh, we're having a lot of fun doing it. I another weird thing I do as a historian is I love to collaborate with people. Probably because I'm into social commerce, I would guess. But he and I, uh, we just love talking to each other and passing things back together. So that's going to keep me busy for a while.
1: Thank you, Andrew, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. I welcome your comments. So drop me a note at newbooks.americanstudies at gmail.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.